guest today is Ian Davis, an independent investigative journalist, author, and blogger from the UK. He's a frequent contributor to UK column, Unlimited Hangout, everybody loves that on Rockfin, and Off Guardian. You have got to see his latest on Off Guardian. We're going to talk about that today. His work has appeared in The Corbett Report, Technocracy News, Lou Rockwell, countless others. He really gets the very big picture and digs into the details to prove his points. And he does just that in his latest book, which I've heard great things about. I haven't read that yet, but the other sub, I'm certain it will be a must read, Pseudo Pandemic, New Normal Technocracy. So strap on your tanks, I'm Monica Perez, and we're going deep with a dive master. Hey, Ian, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me, Monica. It's a pleasure. It's nice to be here. Oh, my gosh. So I had, I was just telling you, uh, tell the listener, because they any anybody who listens to my interviews, I pretty much always ask two questions. Well, first I ask about the person and I want to hear about your, how you got to where you are and develop these skills and all of that. But I always ask people, what, what's the true nature of power in the world and the universe? And like, where does actual competition begin and the theater of it all end? And like, my nexus is always Putin. Is Putin playing a role for like the entire, for the, for the West to have a boogeyman and they're really conspiring behind the scenes or is he got his own thing going? Is that where there are two colors on the chessboard or what? And you can imagine I was, or my listeners will know, I was blown away when I was reading your most recent articles, which address just that. And in such depth and not speculative, historical detail, reasons for your conclusions, it's just a must, must read. So I really want to talk a little bit about that today. But I also, because you're so professional, so um, obviously well-educated, so clear-thinking, such a great writer. Usually our world of alternative media doesn't get that caliber. And I, I wanted to, wondered if you could tell my audience who might not know about you, kind of where you develop those skills and how, how it is that you are able to share that with us instead of having probably the job that you might need to pay for probably the education that you had. Well, uh, yeah, I'm I'm um, I'm an autodidact. Actually, I'm not particularly well qualified at all. I um I've spent most of my life working in health and social care. Um, I I went to university when I was younger, but I flunked out because I was a bit I was a bit flaky in those days. See, this uh, is all adding not, credibility. Not 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 that I'm not flaky now, but um, but um, yeah, I I so I. I was working most of my life, and then I got made made redundant when I was uh, I'm 50. I was probably about 45, 46, a bit older maybe. Uh, and then I, I started. Uh, I'd already started writing, so I've always been a writer. I've always written for pleasure, and I've written for work journals and things like that. And, and you know, I've, I've mainly written reports. You know, during during my working life. But um, I've always enjoyed writing and I started blogging. Now, I think I started blogging in about 2008, something like that, maybe a bit earlier, um, purely as a, you know, a, a sideline, really, um, and just out of interest. And the thing that, that stimulated me to do that or that pushed me to do that was, you know, things like 9-11, you know, I didn't immediately, you know, when 9-11 happened, I didn't, I, I, I knew something was wrong with it, but I, I didn't, I didn't really kind of formulate what, what I thought about it. 
and it wasn't until a few years later that my my partner sort of said you know you do realize this is rubbish don't you and I and then I started looking into it a bit more and and that kind of set me off looking at this stuff this kind of stuff and then I started reading people like you know historically you know reading people like Bizzinski and then and that Murray and I've always been quite politically active I'd say I was politically more politically centered on the left um but I've moved towards a kind of voluntarist position now. Um, and that's after reading people like Rothbard and so forth, um, you know, and Spooner and people like that. So, so um, yeah, and then, and then uh, the writing, really, I got made redundant a few years ago. Uh, and the writing was, a few people had sort of said that, you know, you, 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 your writing's not bad. <laughs> so then, so then I, so then I, um, Thought right, I'll give it a go. I'll see if I can. I'll see if I can do it. You know, I'll see if I can get more, more, um, more content out there and, and focus on it more. And I've been focusing in it. I've been focusing on it since then, uh, and I've been very, you know, very fortunate that you know people seem to. It seems to resonate with some people. I've got a very, um, you know, I write long form, long form essays really. Uh, I don't write short, pithy articles. That's something that I would like to do more of, but I just I don't even know that I'm any good at that, you know. So I, I get I get carried away with the subject, and um, I get I you know, and I like to get into the nitty gritty of the subject, really. I have a few things ready. First of all, I'm totally going to get pushback for suggesting that you needed the uh, the imprimatur of the Ivy League or whatever to have that kind of skill because I actually did go to Ivy League schools and I didn't develop. I'm a, I am not as good a writer as you, but I'm a good writer. I, I give good blog, and when you when I began it, it it wasn't great, but over time, I absolutely got to be a much, much better writer in doing. And of course, that's the best way to learn how to do it. But so I have to stand corrected that to assume that you come from that. But but it, it, your writing is so professional that obviously it be token some, um, you know, a professional great level experience. So the fact that you've been doing it for a long time would account for that. It's a real joy to read. And for me, I notice even I do write kind of short-ish blogs, not lately. I, I mean, ever since WordPress took me down and I kind of lost all the formatting and all the media and all my links, I was disheartened. It was like seven years. I, I used to really care about all the details and it just got, you know, whatever, it demoralized me. But even then I would write, it would take to write one kind of short blog post, it would take me all day because I would go back and reread it and I would want it to be perfect if I stumbled over a single sentence. And I noticed that in your writing, there's absolutely no chance you don't go back and read that like a thousand times to make sure it's absolutely perfect. So I should say, if you're doing it, I want to know your secrets because that I just, it's such a joy um, because you're obviously have such high standards in that, but also the research behind what you're doing, like the article that I want to talk about, I just loved it. And this was just the first of what you're doing, a three-part series, The Multipolar World Order, which is on Off Guardian, and I'm sure it's on your website, iandavis.com, right? I-A-I-N-D-A-V-I-S.com. Yeah. So when you do something like that, how, I mean, how do you begin to do the research and then how long does it take? I realize that can't really be the same for everything, but there you know, to start with a blank piece of paper and write something that goes back to the piece of Westphalia and brings us to the true nature of Putin in, and that's just part one, <laughs> like the, what is going into that? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I suppose it's, it's. Um, I mean, I did, I, I should add that, you know, perhaps being a bit disingenuous, I did retrain as a journalist as well when I, when I gave up work. So I, so I, I had, got of, a, yeah. I've got a bit of an advantage there, but I mean, but it I, is experience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's experience. Um, I mean, I guess the thing is the research really takes longer than the writing, definitely. Um, and it's like anything, isn't it? I mean, you build up, a, a you have a certain body of knowledge. You know, I mean, if you ask me to write about, I don't know, horse racing or sport, or I mean, I wouldn't yeah. have a clue. I, it, would, right. I, it would take me forever. Yeah. But because it's it's already in my kind of field of interest and I have got a little bit of background knowledge, it's building building blocks, isn't it? You start building on that. So I, so when I when I started thinking, and I mean, I've been thinking about, um, I suppose I've been thinking about the, this this theme of the multipolar world order for quite a while, and you know, and, and often I find that that's a that's a point. I don't know what I'm going to write about for a long time because I have to think, you know, I have, I have to be clear in my own mind what my perception of it is. You know, to even have to even have a starting point, and even then, I, I might think that I know what my perception of it is. But when you start researching it, suddenly you realise, oh no, that, that's not true at all. And I was I was completely wrong. That's you so know. great, and that's the beauty of being an autonomous journalist is that, and you're just seeking the truth. You absolutely have to not have an assignment to find an answer. You can't yeah. be a, a unmovable as far as your conclusions because just coming into this, like I don't know the answer to Putin, and and you're approaching it with a totally open mind. So wait, let me just ask: Were you the body of knowledge that you bring to this? Is that because you have always been interested in history or psychology like what 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 is your foundational knowledge yeah I mean I've always been interested in history and I've always been interested in politics and political philosophy and and, and, and that kind of thing really um more from a work point because I was very active in the unions when I was when I was in my working life so I've always been a kind of associated with the unions and a union steward and so forth and all that kind of thing so so uh, and I guess my background really uh, in thinking about my kind of reading, a lot of it was sort of Marxist theory and all that kind of thing. So, so um, you know, that's sort of, and I've always enjoyed reading on various subjects. And I think generally I've just always been quite inquisitive person. So I always want to know more. I always want to know why, why things work the way that they really do. understand it yeah 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 but for my just for my own just for yeah. my own benefit really because so so I want to just get to point out something or ask you about something that so when I read your writing and when I've I've talked to you we were on AM wake up together and I think I crashed your thing <laughs> I showed I up I early <laughs> I showed up early because I wanted to do a little crosstalk with you but the so when I, in talking to you or hearing you elsewhere and also reading this, and I, I, I have someone else I talk to often who does, who's the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine online, Jeremy Kuzmarov, and he also comes from a left perspective um, currently, not originally, he's not moved on his ideology, although his eyes are open to real facts, so we can absolutely get along on everything because... Um, you know, ideology to me is just a, a viewpoint on basically, you know, okay. whatever. We don't have to get into that. But, but uh, I, so you said that you came from the left and then you 
moved to a more voluntarist perspective. And I was kind of raised and always embraced the idea of libertarianism and kind of pure anarcho-capitalism, capitalism, math, like logic. I went to law school, I had a little bit of a problem in law school because it isn't really like the same as an Excel spreadsheet. There has to be some balancing. It's very hard for me to get my mind around that. But when I, so when I talk to Jeremy, when I read your stuff, when I look at what's happening like in Bolivia or um, Venezuela, when I see our, the kind of corpo governmental continuum, the, the globalists, whatever you want to call them, go into these countries and build their factories and um, have the people work there. And then you got, you get like socialist or communist movements to react to that. It's very hard for me to get my mind around that because I see what's, uh, how to think about it because I see what's very wrong with what people, what outsiders are doing to interfere with the country. And then they go and they change the laws because they want it to be conducive to United fruit or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, I, I find it hard to get my mind around how the people would want communism. Like there, there should be a better way, but I can't help but be sympathetic to the guy who is, you know, the Bolivian guy or, or whatever, where he's like an indigenous person who seems to want to represent what, what are being argued as collective interest of indigenous people. But I know government can't be trusted. And I just, so for me, I have to come from the right to be sympathetic to this kind of imperialism and you're coming from the left. And I just, you know, how do you integrate that? How do you keep you know, how do you deal with, with the pure ideology versus the practical reality in how you view the world, how you judge, how you judge what's happening? Well, I think you need the nail on the head there when you just said that, you know, uh, uh, it's just a perspective. So an ideology that you might be familiar with, that you grew up with, or that you've, you know, you've come to adopt over the years, you're right, it's just a perspective. And one of and one of the things, and I And I've been quite dogmatic over the years about my beliefs, you know, especially when I was in the unions and so forth. You know, so, you know, the idea of in the in the UK, we call the conservatives, the Tories. And I was fiercely opposed to the Tories, you know, so and that that was from a uh, I guess there was all there's a cultural element to that as well. But I think one thing that this kind of latterly as my as my sort of career has changed path and I've been doing more writing. And, and meeting more people like yourself and working with people like UK Column and so forth, um, that's really challenged my perception of, of this right-left paradigm. And, I'm, and I now am starting... I mean, I've always suspected that, that the divisions, a lot of the divisions are put in society for a reason, you know, it, it, that, that keeping us divided, the old older adage of divide and rule is, is a, you know, it's a... It's a working policy. It's not a. It's not. It's not a meaningless trope, you know. So um, I, and I've come to be more acutely aware of that as 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 you know as time's gone by, and I've realised now that certainly coming at it from a looking at it from from what the effect of the kind of what you might call the globalist mindset, or I've called the public private partnership, or whatever you want to call it, um, that 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 keeping us divided is one of the key mechanisms for controlling us because while we are squabbling with each other when you boil it down to 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 brass tacks when you get right down to it what do most people want 
They want they want a decent standard of living if they can achieve it. They want health and safety for themselves and their family. They want their children to prosper. They want to have a peaceful life. Now, I think that's the same pretty much everywhere. I think, you know, it may take us, it takes people a different amount of time to, to get to that point. And sometimes circumstances won't allow people to get ever to get to that point. But most people would like, you know, most people that I would suggest that that's what they want. They don't don't particularly want to harm anybody else. So it doesn't really matter what your your, your ideology is. Your needs and your hopes for the future are pretty much the same across the board, I think. And I think we are closer to each other and we are we've got far more in common with each other than the people that would seek to divide us would like us to would like us to know. And actually it frustrates me when people get heated and don't like each other over politics, which has happened in this country, probably in years too, recently, as the underlying ideology of both parties support the welfare warfare super state, like 100%, and then the people still get all worked up and people in my family have radically different ideologies. And I just laugh. I'm like, I don't care at all what you think, because it doesn't matter does not matter what you think. We have no control. The voting is just for us to uh, think that we have a part of it. It does matter that there's corruption and lies and the facts aren't true and the press is completely controlled. We can all agree on that. That's why I love Jeremy, because we can all agree on that. Anybody with eyes to see. I mean, and if you can't see it, you're obviously totally immersed in that psyop, which they have gotten a lot of people. But there's one little wrinkle, and then I want to talk about your article. But one little wrinkle to this like kind of two-party psyop that I see coming up as like a second order thing where in the alt space, you'll see somebody who was maybe a former CIA agent who really comes with the with the goods, you know, or used to be in the mainstream media and really has like the kind of depth of research that you bring and this oh, high level connections or whatever. And so today there was an article or recently an article in the Atlantic. This doctor thinks that he got can't, his cancer recurred because of the booster. Like why are they, when there's something that seems very conspiracy oriented, but it's coming out in either a mainstream outlet or an alternative person from that background, I, I always smell a rat. I, I read Cass Sunstein's Cognitive Infiltration or whatever Cass Sunstein's Conspiracy Theory essay recently. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he goes no. into... You, are you not familiar with that? Well, he's recent. Has he written... I'm, no, I'm, 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. He, he wrote that and it's about cognitive infiltration and it's very kind of broad brush and every even the things that he thought this will never work... They did yeah. like banning, taxing, you know, the, the, the cancel culture is a tax, demonetizing is a tax, banning censorship, all the things that he rejected is like, well, they, nobody will stand for that. Every single idea he had has already been obviously implemented and surely more. So I feel like even in the alternative space, you have now these controlled opposition actors, but some of them, I mean, some really huge people, like maybe you could say Alex Jones or something, but you know, at some, I, I just would like your opinion as to the purpose they serve. Is it just corralling like a honeypot so that the ideas are contained so that the really big guys don't flirt with the edges of the truth? Or do you have any opinion on that? I, I do. I it might not be, you might be surprised by this. Um, 
I am aware that there are, you know, what what in people that infiltrate, you know, that there are people that come into this space and they have an agenda and they they you know not necessarily a nefarious agenda, but they might it might be just it might be as simple as a commercial agenda, you know. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I got you. Know, you. But, but um, but there are people that you know say things to order and write, and possibly some people that write things to order as well. But I don't care. Yes, because I, because I because I kind of think all information it is it is beholding upon the the reader or the listener or the the recipient of that information to always to do their due diligence and check. The, the sources check the information check what the what the person's claim so it, it really doesn't matter what they claim because it's not up to them to convince you it's not up, and I, I think this very much about journalism as well it's not up to the journalist to convince you it's up to you as the reader to to get what you can from what they're trying to say regardless of what the information is totally I've got to say you hit the nail on the head for me because I have this expression like I, as far as limited hangouts go, I get more out of them than they get out of me. Yeah. And, yeah. and because they're, they're coming with like, I think Edward Snowden is total, you know, fake, but he, he gave information, he raised awareness. We can get more out of him than he gets out of us. And, uh, also I, um, well, I, yeah, I mean, we don't have to go through a list, but actually the Edward Snowden is a good launching off point for, like the Putin story, because it was, I don't, I, it would have been unusual to like really dig into the Edward Snowden story for you. I was really trying to crack the code on conspiracies and stuff back then, like a, a, a item by item. And the internet was much more open back then. So I could, yeah. uh, so I, and there's now a guy called nomadic Everyman, but then it was, he was called uh, American Everyman. He really cracked the code on Edward Snowden and like went through the layout of the airport where Snowden was allegedly holed up for like 45 days. It had one bathroom. The world's press was there and he never used the bathroom. He wasn't staying at the hotel. He never got coffee at the coffee place. He, you know, he wasn't there. It was very clear. Yeah. He was not there. And yet Putin has been on, you know, this kind of thing with him it totally validates the story that he's in Russia, which I absolutely don't believe, but maybe he is in Russia. Maybe he's not. So let's, Stipulate, if you would, that our Edward Snowden's full of it, and Putin, and it's our psyop, and yet Putin acknowledges it as if it were real. Same thing with like ISIS and 9-11. Putin mm -hmm. plays into those things. So I, I've always seen with Putin, yet I also dug into the 2014 coup in the Ukraine, and mm -hmm. I absolutely couldn't believe it took Putin eight years to, and I, I mean, he ha simply had to step in, in my opinion, or the day Ukraine went NATO, we have World War III because Russia's occupying Crimea, and they consider that an invasion, it would be of a NATO country. So Putin, in my opinion, is like saving the world from World War III by what he's doing. I know that might be probably getting me banned from something or other, but <laughs> whatever. Uh, so so he's doing something right. However, he does all these things that absolutely clearly he's using propaganda against his own people. He's he writes those things about the global governance and all of that seems to play right in. And I know that that is the subject of part three of your series, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and so let's so but part one of your series, which talks about UN, which talks about switching, I guess, from the unipolar 
world order to the multipolar world order and how Putin plays into that. Can you just maybe start from square one and just even define those two terms? What is the unipolar versus the multipolar? And do you like it or is there hope on either end or not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, these are terms that have been given to us. So I think it was it was um, Stuart Patrick from he was among the people, but Stuart Patrick from the Council on Foreign Relations kind of, I guess, elucidated what the what the international rules based order is or whatever, which is the term we have become more familiar with over, I would say, the last, what, five, six years. I think that's come more to the fore. But really, IRBO is that the, the thing? I, the IRBO, yeah, the or, or international rules based system. I mean, I, I remember, I think it was Theresa May, our, our former prime minister, when she was, um, I think it might have been before she was prime minister. Uh, I remember her talking about the international rules based system and me thinking that that's sitting kind of uncomfortably with me because I thought, well, what about international law? I thought that was the system. But, I mean, you, you could go. So there, there seemed to be at that point, I think this was, you know, we're talking about the kind of 2010, sometimes around there a bit later, there was this change, this shift from, from putting all the emphasis on international law and starting talking about this va much vaguer concept of rules. Well, rules aren't law, are they? Rules suggest that someone's making them up. Yes. I mean, I, I, would, I would argue that international law is very much like that, but Yes, I don't even think there is such a thing as international <laughs> yeah, no, law. Neither, neither Thank law. God. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, if you so if we go if we go back, so uh, really, it's in the post-war the post-war settlement. We've got the United Nations set up, and at that point, obviously, economically, the 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 U.S. has won the Second World War. Um, you could argue militarily that 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 Russia won it. You know, and Europe. Europe are in the in a in a uh, a state of turmoil and in a, a period of restructuring, so really that leaves America as the the hegemon, and then we get the the, the Cold War because Russia of you know militarily of, uh, uh, equal in in many regards and certainly in nuclear terms. So then we get the Cold War, and at that point you could call that a bipolar system. But then you know in the seventies. Then we get the, the the U.S. coming off the gold standard, and then we get the the kind of economic, the beginning, the emerging sort of economic neoliberalism that comes to the fore at the end of the century, and then we get obviously the end of the of the um, Soviet Union. The Soviet Union collapses, and that's when we get what you might call the unipolar world order, and that's when people like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs and people like that, the think tanks. They start talking about the unipolar in earnest. They, they they really start talking about it in earnest. And is that the U.S. UK axis, or is it which is what which is on top? Is is Israel in there? Is it a triangle? The idea the idea is, isn't it? Is the oh, how do we put this? I suppose the official story of the unipolar world order is that the U.S. is the hegemon. Yeah. But then, you, but then you could go back to look at things like the transatlantic alliance, and then if you if you Montague then you, and the Fed, yeah, and you've got you've got you know so for you know you could go back to the Roads Roundtable movement and right, Milner's right. kindergarten. CFR and all that is a daughter of the Chatham House. Yeah, so CFR not a parent. It's no, it's it's a relationship. So you've got something called like like. Even now, for example, you still have the Pilgrim Society. So the Pilgrim Society, when the 
the first engagement that the US ambassador has in Britain is to go and speak at the Pilgrim Society, and that's vice versa. The first engagement that the UK ambassador has in, in the US is to go and speak to the Pilgrim Society, which is a, a transatlantic, these people are transatlanticists. They, they believe in this kind of unification of the two, two things. Now, you could argue from a political point of view that, you know, probably since, you know, the 1970s onward, that the US, what's in that for the US, really? Because the US, is, Europe has grown up to be something of a, of a, a challenge to, to the US power, certainly within NATO, as, as Europe were moving towards military unification, as they were in the last few years, which I would suggest may have something to do with um, events that are happening at the moment. You know, because it's certainly in the US interests for Europe not to be a dominant force within NATO, which potentially it could have been. And especially also you've got the Germans for, who are the heart of the EU. The Germans were forging this closer trade relationship with Russia. So it was in the US interests. From I mean, that started the First World War, didn't it? It's uh, Yeah. And that's it. So, from, that's, so it's got uh, from Russia's geopolitical uh, from the US's geopolitical interests and strategic interests aren't served by that relationship flourishing so you know that but that doesn't mean that that's I'm not suggesting for one moment that that is the cause of what's thing but but all of these things fit together I would say in a broader framework that is based upon the sharing and the distribution of power at a level that exists below above the political. So, you, so you've got political power, which you know the people that the the how politics works. So I would put Putin and Xi Jinping and Biden and you know people like Pelosi. that, Pelosi and people that put them in the at the political level of power. So these are the the people that we are given face. to face. To face. Yeah. So they're they're the PR people. They're the people that are put there for us to. To, to relate to, but above them, and I would say it is above them, yeah. is a network of international capital, and it's global capital. So this is this is the the, the people that control the, the the flow of capital around the world. Their interests are also served by the machinations of the nation state. So the machinations of the nation state for them. Sorry. Yep. I had to ask. So I would argue that Larry Fink is the BlackRock guy, is the Pelosi of BlackRock and not yeah. the master. Because if you look at his backstory, he was a failure several times over mm -hmm. and he's the most powerful guy in the world. So again, a face job. But could you name one name of someone who you would say, or is it an entity? Give me a, a proper noun of the one level above Pelosi and Putin. Uh Augustin Carstens at the Bank of International Settlements. And, and so, he's the head of the Bank of International Settlements. He is. And I mean, then again, so so if you take an organization like BlackRock, so as you quite rightly said, Larry Fink is the face of BlackRock. 
but who is the board? The board of directors is driving yes, the activity yes, yes. of BlackRock. So there's it? actually ten guys who are getting together, and they have their yeah. own interests. There, I mean, I don't mean to sound ignorant. I I was a banker, so I like I get how boards yeah. work, but it. But sometimes what you see is not what you get. So, it, but I would argue, I would, I think that's acceptable to say. It thinks sitting in a room with ten guys who we don't know who before he got into the room hashed it out. Give him his marching orders. They probably have still more stuff to hash out, but they're all aligned. It's kind of like why Putin would accept ISIS and 9/11 and Snowden because he doesn't actually want to pull back the curtain because he uses the levers that are behind the curtain, exactly. and that just isn't it. That's why they say that it was totally uncool for the Democrats to do Iran Contra to Reagan, and that's why they impeached Clinton because you just Look what happens when you start pulling back the curtain. You know, nobody mm. wants that. So uh, I think, then, yeah, maybe there's that. And of course, everybody, you know, a secret that is kept is useful, isn't it? Especially if the, yeah. if your especially if your opponent yes are aware that you have that secret. Yeah. You know, so so I mean, you know, the, the who yeah, why give it up? It? Yeah, why give it up? I mean, that's that's the point. It's leverage, isn't it? It's yeah, and, and it has value. And this is why when I get trolls, like real, very annoying, like Twitter or whatever, when I was on the radio, like it would be so annoying. I would never say, fuck off troll, because then I would have to discover the troll that took that troll's place. Yeah. So I would just yeah. act like I didn't know because it would give me an understanding of the situation that I would not have if I gave up my my occulted knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, I mean, then, then, then we start talking about that. I mean, talking I know. About the <laughs> I mean, if you're going to talk about like the uh, the upper kind of, I mean, I I don't know much about the black nobility, right? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I, either. I don't know much about them. Yeah, I know people that know a lot more about it than I do, and it, and it, and I must admit, it is something that fascinates me. But oh, I, you have I, to tell me a name. I need to talk to this person. Yeah, well, um, oh. I mean, you don't have to do it now, but like, get get me a name. I'll, I'll give, get me I'll a give brain a to pick. I'll give you a couple of names okay. after after this, yeah. Um, but you know, it does seem if you look at the kind of history of kind of you go back to kind of Venetian banking and things like that. So yes. I I look at things very much from I guess a financial perspective because I see I I wouldn't necessarily say that the the bankers are in charge. But I, I would say that finance is in charge. Yes. And and money and money. It's everything. Yeah. Is everything. It's almost like, isn't it? It's like the it's like the the the, the veins of a body. It's the thing that keeps the keeps the blood flowing, that keeps everything going. I feel ironically, or maybe the opposite of ironic, I feel like it's the zeros and ones of binary. It's that everything looks like it's a mosaic of whatever, mm. but it's really just pixels that can be reduced down to those zeros and ones, those dollars and cents. And it's funny because they are actually going to do that when they transition money to just pure blockchain or pure central bank digital currency, whatever, will actually be the zeros and ones that make up the mosaic of our world. And I mean, who knows if they'll even blur the line between the money and the metaverse I don't know, oh. but I've heard you talk about that stuff. We're not talking about it now, but you and I can talk about that in part four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I, I'll just say now, yes, they, yes, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so so we've got the finance guys are the guys on top, for sure. And yeah. the unipolar, multi, we were talking about the unipolar, multipolar. Is that really, is there really a distinction there? And do you favor it or not? But the unipolar world, 
we were defining as this, um, you know, I said, was it US, UK, Israel? Is it a triangle? Is it a dot? Is it the queen? Is it Rhodes? And it's really the 10 guys on the board. Yeah, it's just, it's a, I would say it's a transatlantic alliance of shared yeah. interests that seeks to impose a single hegemony using the US as as the military and the economic driver of that. Okay, so yeah, go ahead. Give me an end then. Yeah, no, that's it. Okay, so so I I get that, and then I start thinking, was there a point at which they did actually? So I I always. One theory I read, and I think is maybe true, is Rockefeller wanted to have a world monopoly on oil. That was the way he was going to control the world forever. And he was smart. He lived a long time. He was the richest guy in the world. And he thought intergenerationally. And the first thing he did was take out the czar, because the czar might have had the same idea. And if you replace it with a bunch of communists, you're probably not going to get the industrial powerhouse that could give Rockefeller a run for his money. I'm talking about like 100 years ago or more. I actually wonder now if after 100 years, they, big T, they in the West realize we are never getting that monopoly. Like Putin's back or, or Xi Jinping has like human capital, has all this stuff. So they, that Eurasian island, the world island is, is, has become self-aware. They are, we almost got them. You know, the West almost completely got control of the world uh, government or whatever, but it wouldn't even make sense for the West to do. It would be a complete coup of like the island nations to dominate the world island like that. And, and that, uh, so, so I'm resting right now on that way of thinking of it. Like it was kind of, there were times, especially when the Russia was behind the iron curtain and East Germany and stuff where it looked like we were the only game in town for real prosperity and world dominance. And now, even though we probably wanted to control the landing on all that, uh, it was just not possible. There's too much kind of gravitas on that end of the scale. And, and now there is a real battle ensuing between what i mean so far do i make any sense or do you think i'm no no I, no okay. I, I understand that. i mean I, the only thing i would say to that is, is that i don't think there was ever a moment where the 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 u.s unipolar leaders of the u.s unipolar world order thought they could maintain it i don't think there was ever a moment because if you if you if you look at um like the wesley think, clark episode yeah, well, there's that. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you look at um, the things that the Trilateral Commission was saying in the 1970s, so if you look at what Bezosinski was saying, this is even before he became Carter's advisor. So, so just just the, the work that he was doing in the think tanks and in the sort of policy development area, and his books, of course, he they there was an acceptance there that the that the notion of a single country being the hegemon of the world couldn't couldn't yeah, be sustained it, it couldn't be sustained uh, and when he was looking towards the eurasian landmass i mean I, th- I can't remember his precise words but it was something like you know that there's just no way that you can control uh, uh, that many people with so many such a diverse array of different cultures different languages diff- you know it's just unless you're going to wage some sort of all out global war and just do it by military conquest or just digitize everyone. I mean, that's what they're doing. Right. So, so I think, I think the idea of a global, so then, then you've got the, okay. So I understand what you're saying. Thank you. Yes. So you've got, so you've got a slight difference between the aspirations of people that seek global dominion and power 
and their practical ability to do it, bearing in mind that most of these people are probably just as realistic as anybody else. So they're realists as well. They might have some wacky ideas like eugenics and all that kind of thing, but they're realists. So they know, and they were certainly writing about, and the think tanks were talking about the fact that they couldn't impose a, a one world system of just brute force rule on everybody. That isn't going to work. So then this idea starts to emerge, and I would say that the Rockefellers were very much part of this, and this happened in the post-war period. You know, and this is prior, obviously, to what the trilaterals, trilateralists were talking about. But this idea of global governance. So this idea that, all right, okay, so we can't rule by force, and we can't rule by fiat, and we might not even be able to rule completely by economic means. But we can have a system of global governance. So if we have a system of global governance... That is a, a pinch point at which we can exert influence. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I've spoken about what um, Rothkopf called the superclass, where he was talking about their ability to move millions of people and move finance across borders. So he's talking about what I've called the oligarchs. We can, he called them the superclass. But, but what he said was that that ability is a force multiplier. So yes. if, they, if, if, they, if they lend their their economic or uh, resource weight to one side or the other, then that gives that side an advantage. Yeah, I so caught that in your article, and I thought that was a brilliant way of looking at it. Like, even when you look at the LIBOR scandal, which nobody yeah, yeah. knows about the biggest scandal, it, yeah. I mean, that was a matter of fractions of a penny. Yeah. But the difference that it made yeah. changed the, the position of the person in power. It multiplied his 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 power and it changed the world a little bit. It made differences and that you wouldn't even know. I mean, that's the crazy thing that you mentioned there, the LIBOR scandal, because, I mean, I mean, that was going on for years. I mean, and they, what, they, and they what else is going the, on? They were fixing the rates for absolutely years. And then the, to pin it on a couple of traders and just say that, you know, oh, yes. well, they, 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 did it, they did it at the weekend. Yeah. You know, I was I was a high yield bond investment banker, high yield bond. So everything was yeah. priced off of LIBOR. I mean, it was do or die. Like that was the absolute foundational. It was like, it was, um, you know, it was like language almost. You know, it's just the yeah. foundation of the whole system and the idea that it could be rigged. <laughs> like it, you you don't understand. Like I would agonize over like t the accuracy out to two cents of things that I put yeah. in the red herring or whatever. Like I would not sleep at night. It was very stressful. And I would call lawyers and have them read. I just was so freaking stressed. The SEC would be there. I was a commercial banker once and like they would come and look at all the books and I never did anything wrong, but I was just worried about a typo, you know? Yeah, yeah. And to think that these guys were doing that, I mean, I would actually think that they would, if it was really just two guys, that maybe it would be a death penalty kind of crime, like the amount <laughs> of impact that it would have and yes, of course right, it can't right. have been because the the level of scrutiny on the that you know i was a, a commercial banker for like oil and gas companies and p the government would come and look at the books you weren't you weren't allowed you had to take two week vacations every year because they said if you're up to no good they will unwind in that time like you would need somebody to watch it they actually had that regulation i don't know if they still do but on every single lowly nobody like me there were those kinds of um you know regulatory failsafes yeah. There's just no way it was a rogue trade. They could not have the power. I mean, what do I know? I didn't like figure out, oh, they, they, this is what they did. This is what they didn't do. But it defies belief for me. 
Yeah, no, and and the fact that it was going on for so long. Right. You know, I mean, if they, I mean, if they were just a couple of rogue traders, then they would have picked it up. Which, but, which they argue that they did, and we picked it up really quickly, and then it comes out about three or four years later. No, actually, it was going on for more than a decade. And 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 there's more. The fact that it's possible. So I always say this: like you can give Obama, you love Obama, give Obama all this power, make the president really, really powerful because he's so great. But you better watch out who comes next. Yeah. Right. And then they got Trump. I'm like, that's why you can't because something of that power will attract people who want to exploit it. So if there was that kind of a hole in the LIBOR system, it would inevitably attract somebody who would exploit it. So it's it's impossible for me to believe that, like, all these super, super high level guys above the traders were totally above, you know, I didn't notice, didn't notice, didn't know it was possible, <laughs> never exploited it. And then on top of but what it really says is. This the reason you don't think all that stuff is rigged from the get-go anyway is because you have faith in those regulatory systems. But they can obviously be circumvented and perforce must be over time. Eventually, those things, arbitrage opportunities, whether they're criminal or not, get exploited. Like they don't... So think of all the underpinnings in the system. Like um, George Soros supposedly front-ran the Bank of England. Yeah, no, yeah, the the man who bankrupted the Bank of England, yeah, yes, and by short and, by short by shorting the pound and, against uh, against the the German mark, what was then the German mark? Oh, you know, but but by by doing that, um, basically betting against his own investment. But here, here's the. Here's my question, because I actually haven't studied it, but just in knowing that kind of just uh, meme, I'm thinking of all the things to get ahead of in finance, his genius, his miracle foresight happened to be something that the Bank of England I, I could have played into his hands. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, okay, because my, my I, idea I, I is... I think he saw an opportunity and he seized it. And I mean, nothing that he did was illegal. There was nothing... There was I nothing. just wonder if he got a tip. Well, it certainly smacked <laughs> off inside. If you trading, could get a tip it? on yeah. anything, it would be currency, is what I'm saying. Currency, oh, yeah, yeah. this is the stuff that the government actually controls and regulates and can make those decisions, whereas the ups and downs of um, some individual stock may be you could get an insider, but I'm just saying he could have gotten an inside tip. And uh, and th just the fact that that kind of thing is possible in the LIBOR, yeah, yeah. who knows where else it's having an impact. I, I really didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but I no, think but it I just mean, belies the, the true potential for corruption and I the mean, facade you, that we see. Yeah, I mean, if you think about there are people, I mean, this is what we're talking about, the ability to like move billions. Now, there are people that have got portfolios that can shift billions around the markets. Now, you don't need to be, you don't even need to be that cute to be able to very quickly figure out that you can play the market. I mean, if you if you take billions out of one stock, you know that stock's gonna dive, don't you? You've just taken right. billion you've just taken billions out of right. it. Right, and then buy it back the next day. So buy it back the next you know, I mean it's it's not even rocket science. You yeah, know, I mean it's not it's not complex. It's if yeah. you if you I think the thing with one of the problems that we have, and something that I've spoken about before, is that if if certain people are, accumulate, and I'm not I'm not sure what that point is, but if you accumulate sufficient capital, then you really at that point you're on a you're on a trajectory where capital just just you can use that capital to just yes. get more and just it's more a tipping and more point. and more and more. It's a tipping point. Yes, yeah. I agree, but I I also would say that in my libertarian 
worldview that accumulate for many, many people to accumulate billions of dollars like that and have these like kind of monopolistic or oligopolistic industries is almost, if not always, almost always, if not always, a function of barriers to entry, of regulatory barriers to entry. I don't, I don't even like patents and copyright. You know, I just, I feel like you want to do something cool. You want to make your first billion by introducing something new to the market. That's great. The next guy is definitely going to make it cheaper and better because he's just going to look at yours. You're not going to get every single thing from the idea Mm. to the conception to the prototype. That's rare that the first is the best. It's just rare. And, and that he's good at everything. He's good at scaling up. He's Zuckerberg, a dropout. And the guy who goes before Congress and the guy who runs the company, the guy who builds the company, makes the biggest company in the world from the garage. Like those are different guys. So I feel like a lot of these, um, the, the billionaire class, we want to call the oligarchs. They aren't even, they're not just rich guys. They're political actors and they are tapping into that. Continue. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I do, and I think you also need to think, question some of these kind of, I mean, like certainly like Bill Gates. I mean, it, how easy it to become a billionaire if your mum gets you a con- sole contract supplier for the biggest computer company in the IBM. world? I mean, that, yeah, who know, could have that, done that, it themselves? That, that, that makes it. That makes it. They could have just hired him. That makes it. <laughs> I mean, and uh, you know, when we look at people like Jeff Bezos, who. Who's uh, you think so about his grandfather the, was I the mean, head yeah, of yeah, but you think about his when he got that initial investment, which was something crazy like 500 million dollars straight off the bat for the for his initial investment. So, his business model that he was presenting was that the margins are so small, I mean, we're talking 0.001 percent, <laughs> right? Profit at best, but 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 if you give me 500 million. I, I will make, you know, eventually, eventually I'll take over the world. Now, eventually, though, is like 30 um, years, right? Yeah, yeah. But but the point is to give who were the people that invested in him initially that thought, yeah, this is a good investment? Because because initially his pitch must have sounded like a completely crazy idea. But he still managed to get all the investment. I remember. He still managed to get all the money. I think I remember seeing a red herring for that IPO back in the day. So I must've been a cognizant <laughs> adult when that happened. And for years after that, and, and I remember people saying like, it doesn't make any money. And the business plan is losses yeah. basically forever. Like there's no, you know, you do a, a, a projection, yeah. five-year projection, 10-year projection. They're like at no point does it ever make money. Who's investing in this? But of course it was a great thing to invest in. And I, yeah. for years after that, I kept looking, it was like, it may, I, maybe my memory doesn't serve, but I believe it did not make any money. I, I you know, I don't, I don't, until kind of recently, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was a business model that was dependent upon global dominion. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, that's my business and, model. I and, need to rule the world. Uh, hilariously, he said once he knew he was going to make it, he went and bought an apartment or, or or rented an apartment that was in a basement, so he could say like he ran it out of his basement. So it, he so he had that kind of a, a story, like yeah. the rest of them have Steve Jobs and whatever Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. So the optics, bizarrely. And then you get like Facebook. I mean, the, all the links with Facebook and the, you yeah, know, the intelligence agencies and everything. I mean. You do look at these things. I mean, I'm sure there there are obviously, and there have been over the years, many sort of self-made, self-made entrepreneurs and business people that have gone on to great success that are self-made. But I think there is a there is also a group of people who 
uh, are assisted. And I think they're and I think they're assisted per perhaps because somebody else sees the potential of their idea for themselves. You know, their their yeah. idea, their, their, the potential of that idea. For example, Bezos presents this idea of of online of an online everything. Right now, if you're if that it was just a make, bookstore. That yeah, had. that yeah, that isn't isn't going to make money. So, but you can see the potential that it could supply the world for everything. And and for me, this this whole era, the modern era of the American billionaire being somebody who's p played behind the scenes, I actually think that that's, you know, I, I think Walmart maybe has a history like that. The big tech has a history like that. But prior to kind of what I noticed to be the Obama era, the government connected rich was really not as much of a rule here as I, I seem to observe in other regions of the world. But now, because the more regulations you put up, the more it, the more you have to use political means to, even to allow you to do business. I don't even really necessarily blame people who have to. I, I actually think bribing a politician shouldn't be a crime against the person who does the bribing because he doesn't no, have the no, public no, no. trust. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you think about it, they're just influencing a politician. Well, that's what we all do when we try and, and lobby one of them, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's and, what we're all trying to do. And if they're sta standing in your way, they might be doing it on purpose. But I do want to, I want to, so that's the unipolar. What, can you define multipolar? What does that mean? Uh, no, I can't define it. I don't no, think I anybody, I don't think anybody can define it at the moment. I mean, the idea is that the that the uh, Chinese and the Russians have put forward, not just them as well, the BRICS as well. And, um, you know, also the, you know, a lot of developing nations that are on board with it, with the idea, uh, which is a good thing. You know, you could argue that's a good thing. Um, is that it would be that the UN, which is basically, I've argued in the first article, is that actually, if you look at the UN charter, it's a, it's a blueprint for global governance and the centralization of authority in, in global governance because the Security Council, I think I use the Security Council, is made king by the Charter. The, the General Assembly really doesn't have any authority at all. It's all down to the Security Council and the Secretariat, which brings us down to, which is the interesting part, is that when the League of Nations became the United Nations, the Rockefellers, um, more or less funded the, the, the that transition and were the the money not not part of the money but they were the money behind the what what later became the secretariat of the United Nations so they they created the infrastructure of the United the, the administrative infrastructure of the United Nations and I think they did it at a meeting in San Francisco with Alger Hiss in attendance who I believe like yeah. went to jail as a communist spy but those guys had a history of wanting to establish a world government it was it was yeah. either a stepping stone or a prototype or a beta or whatever of they wanted to be a world government I believe with the ability to tax and enforce laws I think that was like the kind of two pieces that they always wanted but they couldn't quite get I mean, that is the ultimate thing, isn't it? I mean, in order for a work for, I often talk about global governance, which is the idea of developing policy agenda, which then gets filtered down to national governments who convert those policy agenda. So a classic example would be sustainable development is an idea. It's And, and then you might put out some kind of seminal documents that say about this is where we're heading. So agenda 2030, agenda 21. But it's not law, you know. You're not in, you're not imposing that on a nation state. 
But then that filters down to the nation state and the nation state then converts that into legislation and hard and fast policy, which has an impact on us. Yes. And and they do it coercively. I just did a show yesterday where I talked about a White House executive order, obviously, from February 2nd, 2021. It was one of the first things Biden did. And in it, it's about immigration. It's about immigration. There's a crisis, humanitarian, yada, yada. And in, I think, like the very last little item that they said they were going to do was uh, make sure that the countries of the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala used domestic funding to establish sustainable development protocols and execute on them. So they literally, in this whole thing where they're using U.S. tax dollars to set up this whole migration thing, this whole training thing, this whole humanitarian effort, and in the White House executive order, it just goes on and on about the, the government interference that we are proposing in those regions. But the mm -hmm. last thing being that they were going to dedicate their own resources. Now we could just give them the resources, but they want them to dedicate their own resources. So I feel like it's almost an enslavement to get them indebted because it's not productive to do that sustainable. And I would say this whole like universal international financial tax may be the foundation of world government in that they will establish an international tax. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, they, they've already the G20 have already kind of signed up to that idea of having a. I mean, the the idea is, and how this is always works as well is you always present the idea in an in an appealing light. So, I mean, they they presented the idea of this global tax to stop international multinational corporate tax evasion. So, who's not who's not yeah. going to support that? Always Everyone's in the name gonna, of corrupt anti corruption. Yeah, yeah it's anti corruption. We're gonna we're gonna ensure we're gonna set this fifteen percent level globally that corporations have to pay minimum minimum corporate tax level globally. Now, most people ask most people, they'll think, great, that's fantastic. Yeah, so they should. You know, everyone, yeah. everyone's fed up with with the multinationals offshore in their profits. Everyone everyone's fed up with that. But of course, what you're actually creating is a, is an, is a structure yes. to enable a globe, single centralized control of a global tax system, and that is that is you're right. They are absolutely that that is the basis of government rather than governance. Okay, so the UN has set this up, and is that something that you, when from your article that? Putin and Xi embrace that as their power base. So does that mean that we are, that the US and the UK are against it? Or, you know, where do they start? Where does it start right. converging? Well, okay. So what I've argued in the, in the article is that the, the, the idea has always been to create what we are now calling the multipolar world order, because the idea was to have more multilateralism, right? So you can't have, but, the, the point of the multilateralism from, from the Chinese and the Russian perspective is that it's a power, a, a rebalancing of power. Their argument is to stop, obviously, the US and the, and the G7-centric control and dominance of the Security Council, the UN Security Council, which gives them undue authority and power on the global stage and enables them, let's face it, to act with impunity. So it makes things like, you know, the destruction of Libya and the destruction of Iraq and, the you know, the bombing of Bosnia. And it makes all these things easy for them to do 
because they can they can they're in charge. Well, not in charge, but they can. They there's can nobody control. minding them. There's, yeah, nobody, there's nothing, no watchers. Not, there's no watchers, right? So the Chinese and the basically fundamentally the Chinese and the Russian argument is that by introducing more multilateralism into this system, we can diffuse that power at the UN level. We can have a maybe have more people. They're talking about having Brazil and South Africa in the UN as permanent members of the UN Security Council. So that would diffuse this this concentration of power. It would lead to a more peaceful peaceful world that we wouldn't have all the we wouldn't have all these conflicts. And so that's the that is what I would suggest is the sales pitch. That's the we're bricks. All, so that's yeah, the bricks rising. The bricks. The bricks rising. At the same time, you know, the US and the and the UK and the, and the EU as well have responded to that by kind of welcoming it, going, yeah, maybe we should have more multilateralism, but we don't want Brazil and South Africa. We want Poland and we want, you know, so so it's 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 a, this horse, the horse trade, Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this horse trading going on about the about control of global governance through the UN. Now, a lot of people see that. A lot of people that defend this new multipolar world order consider it to be a defense of the nation state because, and that's why I spoke about the Westphalia model in the first article, which is actually a bit of a myth. But the, but the idea is of the nation state being this bulwark against global governance. You can't introduce global government if, if the world is run with all these sovereign nation states who are, you know, sovereign in their own right and who are able to negotiate agreements with each other. At, on an equal basis, which is the it's which is the fundamental, I guess, the idea that people think came from the Westphalia, the peace of Westphalia. We never learn about that or the Holy Roman Empire. And it's so I, I just hadn't thought of it that way until I read your article. Cause I always think of we hear, hear a lot about the church versus the kings and then Protestantism. And like that's really the essence of when I think about the emergence of the modern nation state. But yeah. I never think about the Holy Roman Empire. Now I really want to read about it. But I want before we wrap this global governance thing. I'm wondering how that folds in with the transparency and accounting stuff that they're trying to push down with the sustainability. So it, like the FASB, there's FASB is the accounting standards. And now there's like SASB or something, which are like the sustainability measurement standards. Do those things fold in together or am I, am I looking for connections where they aren't there? Well, no, I mean, I think that you, you, you're, that's very crucial what you just said there, because while this surface argument is going on about um, national sovereignty and diffusing power, and you know this is this is the argument we're almost given to discuss. While that's going on, things like the International Sustainability Standards Board, which was announced at COP twenty six, is is surging ahead with its setting up its control mechanism of things like ESG and the ETF bundles that are the ESGs are, that are traded within ESG assets are traded within the ETFs and all that kind of stuff that that mechanism is being constructed and when you look and when and that is a global mechanism for sustainable development and for investment in those projects around the world if you look at what Russia and China are doing, who are supposedly the leaders of this new multipolar thing, whatever it, whatever people are calling it, if you look at what Russia and China are doing, they are full on on board with that. 
In fact, when the ISSB was first announced at COP26, which is going to be part, of, it's going to be within the Financial Stability Board, um, they, China offered to host it. China immediately offered to host it. So, I mean, so I, they yeah. are they are full on with the sustainability agenda, and I would I would argue that sustainable development and SDGs is the creation of a new international monetary and financial. It's 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 the foundation for the creation of a new international monetary and financial system. It is the foundation for a new global economy, a decarbonized economy, low carbon economy that's going to be based on carbon trading. And, and carbon offsetting, and also the, the the creation of natural assets, natural asset companies, the, the capitalization of nature yes. itself. Oh, yes. Right? So all this is happening, and Russia and Russia and China are fully on board with it. So there I've, is... I've heard you talk about that. That's, yeah. that's the important bit, I, I think. Commoditizing natural assets like a tree. Oh, I absolutely yeah. have... All right. This is I'm already I'm already on part four of our conversation, so I don't know how much time you have, but um, so we're going to wrap this up. But the part part four I want to talk about is all of that, and um, it reminds me of a book that you might have read that I definitely read, which sounds like it wouldn't be relevant, but Prouty wrote a JFK assassination book. You know, Prouty was like the deep throat of. Um, Watergate. He's an American, but yeah. he wrote. I, I haven't read it. Oh no, I haven't he, read it. It's P R O U T Y. Like he, I forget what his like big thing was that just exposed everything. But when I was reading this JFK book in the introduction, it's at least twenty years old. The introduction, he said, when Magellan circumnavigated the globe, the empires understood the task of the problem and realized they could actually dominate the world. And that's what they've been trying to do for 500 years. And I just think it's funny because then when I see, that's how I looked at like Vietnam and Korea and stuff. I was like, they were, it was mercantile. Like those, those mm -hmm. wars were kind of mercantilistic to get them out of the rice paddies, get them to rice factories, get them out of eating their own rice, getting them to buy rice. Mm -hmm. And now, and then I keep thinking like they're going further. They're making the human being being. like they they just can't it's a, a they it's just the the global corporate impetus it doesn't even that doesn't even have to be uh, it doesn't have to have a central brain it just wants to grow and and the only things left is to consume uh and make consumers out of every human being but i hadn't thought of every blade of grass. Although Alison McDowell mm -hmm. talked about that and the Ice Age Farmer yeah, talks yeah. about that blockchaining like every tomato. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's the mega, mega big picture. And of course, the teeny, teeny, tiny picture. And that's, I mean, you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt for that hour because I'm going to fire hose your brain with questions. <laughs> so get ready for that. But can we, can we do the other two articles and two subsequent? I'm going to ask you while we're on the air so that you can have to say yes yeah no problem yeah, I'd be delighted, yeah. <laughs> okay well good you can count on me to try to keep uh respect your time and that's what we'll do right now but boy was that fun i can't wait for more and you are ian davis i-a-i-n-d-a-f-d-a-v-i-s.com i want people to know your website yeah and and if you want what do you want to tell people to look for or drive people to your books your articles what's interesting yeah, no, I to mean, you? yeah um, yeah so um yeah please check out my my site which is iandavis.com that's where most of my articles that um 
that that go first usually, and then they're often re-syndicated by other people, which I'm very lucky that people do that. Um, but I also write original material for Unlimited Hangout, and I also write original material for UK Column. Um, I would, you know, hope that you check out you Unlimited. I'm sure you I'm sure your yes. viewers are familiar with Unlimited Hangout, yes. and but they may not be familiar so familiar with UK Column. Uh, they put out a new show three days a week. It's on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Friday lunchtimes. It's um, 1 p.m. Uh, British time, British Standard Time, well, GMT. Um, yeah, and they're, they're putting out a lot of good content, so I hope people check them out. And also, I mean, if you want copies of my books, you don't have to buy one. I give electronic copies away for free on my um just I asked for just a, to a subscription email and I'll send you a free copy. Um, if you want to buy hard copies, hardbacks, then they're also available on my site. But I mean, obviously, I'll charge for them because um, that's you know, paper. The cost, that's real. The cost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a cost. That's a real um, thing. Wow. But yeah. But I mean, I hope people will check out my latest book, uh, Pseudo Pandemic. I wrote it. It came out in 2021. But um, what I tried to do in the book was I tried to collate and catalogue all of the information as it was progressed, as we progressed through it, uh, the, the what I've called the pseudo-pandemic, uh, all the information that was publicly available, that was in the public domain that we just weren't told about. So if you want to know what, what the, the story behind the story was, please read pseudo-pandemic because I think I've covered quite a fair bit of it in there. Yeah. And that's very helpful because people do get ridiculed for observing things with their own eyes. And if they want to convince somebody, it's a lot easier when you have real facts and you've done that work. I can tell you it's hard to actually takes a lot of time and effort and uh, experience to be able to come up with research and facts that support what normally you would say is obvious. But in this in this day and age, if the mainstream media isn't behind you, you have to have way more of your I's dotted and your T's crossed. So it's an invaluable service. I can't believe you're giving it away, but that's great. So that's at iandavis.com. Yep. And you can find me. Uh, I'm easy to tweet at, at Monica Perez Show. I'm not going to encourage people to do your tweeting because you're not there every day like I am. But you are, what's your Twitter handle? I forget. Uh, underscore, then all one word in this together. In this together, yes. So, okay, and I'm. Uh, you can find me at monicasdeepdives.com. Uh, that was super, super fun. I knew it would be. I can't wait to do it again. Thank you so, so much for your time, Ian Davis. It's my pleasure, Monica. Thank you very much.